0: If you're following along in your Bibles today, you can turn over to Isaiah chapter 55. It's a sweet section. I'm amazed as I have read through and been preaching through the book of Isaiah how much the New Testament is based upon the book of Isaiah, how much the prophet Isaiah is a missionary prophet who points us to Jesus over and over and over again. As we think about turning our hearts and minds to the Word of God, as we think about contemplating His Word, would you please pray with me? Father in heaven, as we come to Your Word, Father, we pray, Lord, that we would know more of Jesus and Your goodness and Your plan of redemption. And Father, we pray, Lord, that we would not come to Your Word thinking that we can handle it, but Father, we pray, Lord, through the Spirit's power that it would handle us. Father, we pray, Lord, that we would take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and that, Father, with great joy and love for all that you have done, Father, we would be reminded of your grace and your mercy and the love of Jesus. Father, for those who are weary, for those who are struggling, Father, we pray, Lord, that you would renew their strength like the eagles. Father, we pray, Lord, that we would be reminded of the way that you love us and that we are your children children of the Most High King. So, Father, help us to rest in your promises. And, Father, as we read your word, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would comfort us and build our faith. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be reading all of Isaiah chapter 55, all 13 verses. Hear the word of the Lord. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk. Come without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and and a nation that did not know you shall run to you, because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all of the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Okay. So we're in Isaiah chapter 55, and as we come to the the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is looking into the future. Isaiah is looking into the future of the people of Judah, and what he sees is that the people of Judah will be led into exile, into an exile called the Babylonian exile. That'll happen at about 586. Uh, He's writing several hundred years prior to that. And what he foresees is that a people will be there in the midst of a Babylonian exile, a foreign people, and they will begin to assimilate into the culture. They will allow the culture to dictate what they view and value in their lives. And so Isaiah is thinking about that, and the people are struggling. And in Isaiah chapter 55, he reminds them, and he has this word uh, that he comes to them, and he, and he uses this word called come, And so let let me sum up what I'm going to be preaching about today with um, the three R's, and it's not reading, writing, and arithmetic, Um, but it's this, I want you to receive what the Lord is giving you, I want us to repent in a true repentance, and I want us to rejoice in the Lord who forgives and pardons all of our iniquity. So those are the three R's for today. So if you're taking notes, that's how you can sort of frame our, our, our discussion today, although I'm the only one talking. So... The first word we see in Isaiah chapter 55 is, it says, come in your scriptures, and yet that's not even in the Hebrew. It actually is sort of this um, idiomatic statement. It says, hoy, you know, and it's the same way we go, hey, he's trying to get the attention of the people because the people have wandered away from God. And they're distracted all around them, and, and they're, they're burdened with the sin of the people, and they're, they're distracted in their own sin and the sin of others, and they're feeling weary and, and heavy laden. And Isaiah is seeing this, and he's trying to give the people hope. We think about this in, in our current day, and we think about how many of you, when you watch the news, feel weary and somewhat hopeless? Anybody? Regardless of which news agency you're watching. Like, you read it and you go, this is wearying, this is burdening my soul. In a book called The Wisdom Pyramid, written by Brett McCracken, I just want to read the, the first chapter of this, I, or not the chapter, I don't want to read the whole chapter to you guys, but just the first couple paragraphs. He says this, he says, our world has more and more information, but less and less wisdom. You guys feel like that? More and more words, but less and less wisdom. More data, less clarity. More stimulations, less synthesis. More distractions, less stillness. More pontificating, less pondering. More opinion, less research. More speaking, less listening. More to look at, less to see. More amusements, but less joy. There is more, but we are less, and we all feel it. We have vertigo from the barrage coming at us from every direction every day. We are nauseous from the tilt-a-wheel nature of a constantly changing, always unstable world described in often contradictory and whiplash-inducing feeds of fragmented and partisan news. Our ears are bleeding from the screeching multitudes who daily assault our senses. Everyone has a megaphone, but no one has a filter. And the irony of the fact that I'm talking with a microphone is not lost on me. (laughs) That nobody else here today has a megaphone. But do we feel that? We feel the burden of that. And so as we come to this, Isaiah begins and he says, Hoy, hey, let me pay attention to what I'm saying boy, come. And here's what he does. In the first two verses in Isaiah chapter 55, he juxtaposes two different individuals. One individual in, in, chapter, in verse 1, and a second individual in verse 2. He says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price." Now, when we look at this particular um, section, it's this idea that when was the last time you went to a store and you got something and you didn't have to pay for it, right? Like, we are very suspect when you get a phone call saying we have a free deal for you because you know somebody's going to take advantage of you, somebody's going to want to sell you something, And yet what we find in the scriptures, what we find, whether we're reading Ephesians 2 or we're coming to Isaiah 55, it says, come, come everyone who thirsts and come to the waters. And and if you don't have any money, that's okay. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Now, here's what it's it's saying here. This is what we're we're talking about here. It's talking about all those people who are feeling dried up, weary, and broken hearted. And it's, it's, it's this. Um, John Piper says it like this. He says, it's a, for the one who has a lot of old hopes that have dried up. Anybody here had a bunch of hopes dashed? And there's pain and there's weariness there. For those whose dreams have waited and almost died, dead end streets again and again Empty, unfulfilled, dissatisfied, knowing there has to be something more to life. But now that everything that looks good is out of reach, no money, no strength, no motivation, but at least there's a longing, there's a thirst. And that's what we see in Isaiah chapter 55. There's a thirst there. You know, Jesus says it, you know, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be Satisfied. Now, when we think about this, I think about turning your Bibles over to Luke chapter 7. I'm going to show you this. I'm going to illustrate it with an interaction that somebody has with Jesus. And and I'm going to point it out in two different specific places. Um, Luke chapter 7, um, what we find is that, you know, in Luke chapter 7, verse 36, um, I I love this passage because this is a woman who is thirsty. And she is thirsty. She's just thirsty, and she goes, I need to come to Jesus. In, in, in Luke chapter 7, verse 36, it says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. I mean, what a, what a beautiful picture that is when Jesus tells this woman, your sins are forgiven. She came. Now, when we come to this, it says, come to the waters. Now, there's, there's three images there in Isaiah chapter 55 that, that speak to us about what Jesus offers us, those who are, who are weary. The first of which, it's its water. You know, this this idea, come to the waters and, you know, and get this water for, um, and, and what does water represent? Water represents refreshment. You know, when you're really, really thirsty and you're on a hike or you've been without any kind of water or hydration, you just want water. You don't want anything else. But water represents refreshment to your soul. If you're weary, if you're burdened, it represents refreshment to your soul. The second one is milk. You know, so what is milk? You know, well, we know what milk is used for. It's used by babies, and it's used to nourish them. We see this in the New Testament as well, where it is this nourishment so that we can grow and and flourish in the midst of who God has made us. You know, so the idea of milk is one of nourishment so that we can grow. So not only do we receive refreshment when we come empty-handed to the Lord Jesus, but we also receive nourishment. Come and buy. You don't have any money. But come, and I'm going to give it to you. This is what we call grace. The third of which is he says, come by not only water, not only by milk, but come by wine. What does wine represent within the scriptures? Wine represents joy. When people receive wine, they are joyful in the midst of all that God has given them. And this metaphor is meant so that, so that we understand that this is the Lord God of heaven, Pouring forth grace upon grace with us. And it says, come by wine and milk without money and without price. There's no price on it. Uh, you come and, and you get money. So, so what does that mean? We think about this in terms of Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53, the, the great suffering servant um, song. There's four actually in Isaiah. This is the most memorable, the one that is preached most Easters. But in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, this is an encapsulation of the gospel. It says this, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of, of us all. So what that means is the Lord has laid on him, meaning Jesus, the iniquity of us all. That's the gospel. The gospel is this, that you get what you don't deserve. That's called grace. And Jesus takes the penalty for your sins upon himself. And we don't buy that. We don't purchase that. And we have a hard time believing that sometimes because it sounds too good to be true. And we're suspect and we become cynical. And yet within the word of God, it says come. And here's the deal. The only way that we can get it is through another's merit. Here's here's a question for you. How many of you are saved by works? Raise your hand if you're saved by works. I am. I'm saved by Jesus' works. Okay? I didn't say my own. My own works are like filthy rags, right? Like we are saved through the meritorious work of Jesus on our behalf. Because when Jesus is hanging on the cross, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he takes all of our sins upon him, the penalty for our sins upon us, and then we are credited with his righteousness. It's called double imputation or double substitution, however you want to say it. But it's, it's a beautiful illustration of, of what the gospel is. You see, you can't, Merit your salvation. You can't pay for it, but Jesus offers it to you, and all you have to do is receive it. Now, look at verse 2. Verse 2 is another guy. Verse 2 is another guy in Isaiah 55. This guy is different. It says this Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? So, the, if the first guy understands that he's dry and dusty, and all he can do is, is come to Jesus, the second guy hasn't gotten there yet because he still has money in his pocket, right? He still has things that he feels like he can do in order to merit or to find fulfillment in this life. The other guy is like this. It's, um, he, he's, you know, he's still spending and still working and dreaming and chasing and searching and experimenting. Maybe it's a different job. It's a different city. It's a different car, a different house, a different wife, a new computer, a new boat, new books, new bike, new grill, new season tickets, new diet, new looks. There's still a lot of looking around left in this person. But still no pot at the end of the rainbow, no fountain of youth, and every triumph peters out. The applause fades. The boat is boring. The style passes. Everything new gets old, and the options get fewer and fewer. That's what we're describing there in verse 2 of Isaiah 55. They're spending their money for that which is not bread. And bread, you know, as we think about bread, we think about manna from heaven, we think about John 6 where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. You know, it's the bread. This is not bread. You are not finding fulfillment. You are not finding that, will, that which will sustain your soul outside of Jesus. You know, I think Isaiah 55 is looking to the day when the people will come back to the Lord out of a Babylonian captivity and they will trust and believe in the Messiah and the promises of God. And they will so believe that they will have refreshment for their souls. They will be nourished and they can grow. And then they will rejoice with exceedingly great joy at the wine. That's what the wine, the water, and the milk represents. And they will be nourished deeply in their souls. And, and, and notice what it says. It says, come, 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 come. And in verse 3, it says, come again. You know, it says we're to come to Jesus over and over and over again. I hope that we don't come to Jesus just on Sunday. I hope that we come to Jesus every day, as we come and we come and we come. And I love what at the end of verse two, where it says, "Listen diligently to me." He says, "Listen. Don't listen to all the noise going on all around you, all the tweets and you know news agencies and all these other things. Listen." listen diligently to me. In verse 3, it says, incline your ear to me. But it says, listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Think about that. Delighting ourselves in the Lord. Like, The image there is the great wedding feast of the Lamb. The the image there is this wonderful feast that you have and delighting in God in the same way that you you sit down at your Thanksgiving table ready to feast as we come to the Lord. Now that's the idea of coming to the Lord. There's there's a picture um, in in John chapter 4. And it's the woman at the well. I'm not going to read the entire story of the woman at the well, but I think that she encapsulates the second type of person. You know, Jesus Jesus encounters this woman in John chapter four, and she's coming to the well, and she has nothing. And she notices Jesus has nothing to draw with, and he says, "You know, I will give for you eternal water. You know, this this water will never go away." And she goes, "Okay, I'll get it." You know, and and Jesus says, "Go and find your husband." You know, and she goes, "I don't have a husband." And Jesus says, no, you've had four husbands, and the one you're with now isn't even your husband. And you think that pursuing relationships with men is going to satisfy your soul. He's basically speaking about her in Isaiah 55, verse 2. You think that the pursuit of relationship with a man, and, and I'm sure all the women around here would go, amen, if they are like, if you think that your hope will be built on a man other than Jesus, you will be disappointed. Anybody want to say amen? And what Jesus says is, don't buy and pursue and spend all of your time, talent, and treasure for that which is not bread. Matthew Henry says this um, uh, with regard to um, this passage. He says, we must part with our puddle water, nay, with our poison, that we may procure this wine and milk. We need to leave the puddles, we need to leave the poison, and we need to pursue Jesus who will give us refreshment. Now, in in the midst of this, in in the midst of understanding the gospel, I love what it says in in 55 verse 6. So if we're to receive the gospel and it's free to us, we're also called to repent, right? So what does it look like? So, So when you look at verses 6 and 7, it says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. There's this picture there that, that those who come to the Lord, you know, when they understand the goodness of the Lord, the holiness of God, the, the intimate fellowship that you have with Him, then it's, we're called to turn away. So faith and repentance are basically two sides of the same coin I heard it, heard it referred to. You have faith on one side of the coin and you have repentance on the other side of the, the coin. And so there's this, this sense in which we are called to forsake our ways, return to the Lord, and to pursue the Lord seeking Him. And then we're called to do that while He is near. Now, I think that there are things that we need to think about with regard to repentance. Because repentance is a, is a churchy term, and, and we use it, um, and you'll hear it, you know, hopefully you'll hear it uh, a lot, but I think that there's a lot of things that go into our repentance that are oftentimes partial repentance. And now what I would say is that a partial repentance is not true repentance, okay? Um, J.C. Ryle, one of, my, one of my heroes of the faith, um, describes repentance uh, in five parts, so follow along with me in these five parts of what true repentance is. First, let me just read um, what, what repentance is. Repentance, and I'm reading J.C. Ryle, Repentance is a thorough change of, a change of man's natural heart upon the subject of sin. We, all, we are all born in sin. We naturally love sin. We take it, we take to sin as soon as we act. We can act and think just as the bird takes to flying and the fish takes to swimming. There was never a child that required schooling or education in order to learn deceitfulness, selfishness, passion, self-will, gluttony, pride, and foolishness. These things are not picked up from bad companions or gradually learned by a long course of tedious instruction. They spring up of themselves, even when boys and girls are brought up alone. The seeds of them are evidently the natural product of the heart. The aptitude of all children to these evil things is an unanswerable proof of the corruption and fall of man. Now, when this heart of ours is changed by the Holy Spirit, when this natural love of sin is cast out, then takes place that change which the Word of God calls repentance. And he calls him the penitent man. So first, what is true repentance? True repentance begins with a knowledge of sin. You do something or you don't do what you're supposed to do and you have some sort of knowledge, some sort of understanding that that is an infraction or a transgression of God's law. So the first is that we begin with the knowledge of sin. And again, let me quote Ryle where he says, The eyes of the penitent man are opened. He sees with dismay and confusion the length and breadth of God's holy law. And the extent, the enormous extent of his own transgressions, he discovers to his surprise that in thinking himself a good sort of man and a man with a good heart, he has been under a huge delusion. He finds out that in reality, he is wicked and guilty and corrupt and evil in God's sight. His pride breaks down. His high thoughts melt away. He sees that he is a great sinner. This is the first step in true repentance. But just the first one. Second step, true repentance goes on to work sorrow for sin. The heart of a penitent man is touched with deep remorse because of his past transgressions. He is cut to the heart to think that he should have lived so madly and so wickedly. He mourns over time wasted, over talents misspent, over God dishonored, over his own soul injured. The remembrance of these things is grievous to him. The burden of these things is sometimes almost intolerable. When a man so sorrows, you have a second step in true repentance. An acknowledgement of sin, a sorrow over sin. Well, like when you and we know this, right? Like when you when you hurt the people that are closest to you, when you are angry or frustrated or bitter or unforgiving. And the Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit, lets you just for a second to see the depths of the depravity within your own heart. The Holy Spirit works up sorrow within you. That's just the second step. The third step is this. The third step is to confess. True repentance proceeds further to produce confession of sin. The tongue of a penitent man is loosed. He feels he must speak to that God against whom he has sinned. Something within him tells him he must cry to God and pray to God and talk with God about the state of his own soul. He must pour out his heart and acknowledge his iniquities at the throne of grace. They are a heavy burden within him, and he can no longer keep silence. He, he can keep nothing back. He will not hide anything. He goes before God, pleading nothing for himself and willing to say, I have sinned against heaven and before you. My iniquity is great. God, be merciful to me, a sinner." That's the third part of true repentance. And in the midst of that confession of sin, oftentimes you may have to go to a brother or sister in Christ and confess that sin. And we see this done poorly in our homes, especially when you have little kids. We, I was teaching Sunday school recently. And we were on the on the playground and I was teaching with um uh, this man in our church and and he was um we had the little kids and his son was there and his son comes running by this little girl and as he runs by no malice, I don't think I don't think malice anyway, but he still a stinkweed born sin. As he runs by, he totally pushes this little girl over. And this this guy, Pete, who has a big voice, he went, West, come here. You know, and West is like, oh no. And so he comes over and he picks West up and he goes, You will say you're sorry to this little girl. And West, in the weakest, most pathetic part of confession, which probably is like my own, he starts to run. And as, the, and as he's running, the little girl's name goes, sorry, and just kind of keeps on running. <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about here, okay? That's not what I'm talking about here. That's not true sorrow. I'm not even sure he acknowledged what he did was wrong. I'm not sure there was a lot of sorrow. There was sorrow for getting caught, right? Like we see that. We we don't see sorrow against God in in that instance, and we saw a very weak confession. But when you understand your sin, you acknowledge sin, you're sorry for your sin, you run to God, you fall on your knees, and you go, Lord, have mercy upon me. Forgive me because of Jesus. And the beauty of the gospel is that you can take anything to him. There is no sin so great in your life that you will not be forgiven by God in Christ. I've, I've, I've heard people that feel like their sin is so great that they can't come because they feel like God won't forgive them. And what I tell them, and I try to do it very pastorally and very gently is this, is that you have a pride problem. And the pride problem is you think that your sin is greater than the infinite pardon of Jesus or the death of Jesus on the cross. Do you think that your sin is greater than Jesus hanging on the cross? The son of God who became man and lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that was meant for us? Do you think that your sin is greater than the gift of God? So acknowledging, feeling sorry, confessing. The fourth is this. True repentance furthermore shows itself in a thorough breaking off from sin. This is what we see in in verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way. The life of a penitent man is altered. The course of his daily conduct is entirely changed. A new king reigns within his heart. He puts off the old man. What God commands, he now desires to practice. And what God forbids, he now desires to avoid. He strives in all ways to keep clear of sin, to fight with sin, to war with sin, to get the victory over sin. He ceases to do evil. He learns to do well. He breaks off sharply from bad ways and bad companions. He labors, however feebly, to live a new life. When a man does this, he has entered into the fourth stage. Now, this is where we get caught up. I see people who um, acknowledge sin; um, they feel sorry for their sin, and they confess their sin. But there's not a wholehearted breaking off of their sin. I mean, I've heard stories where you know a man will call his wife and ask for forgiveness for the affair in their marriage from the hotel room where he just conducted the affair. That's not true repentance. You know, and when people come into me and they say, you know, but, but I said I was sorry. Isn't that true repentance? And I'm like, that's partial. We have to see, pre- repentance is, you know, ongoing. I mean, there's this progressive nature of repentance. We call this progressive sanctification. Repentance is, is a part of that. Do we turn away from the sin? I see that with people who are addicted to to alcohol or people who are addicted to painkillers or other things. Are they doing everything that they can to fight against it, to turn away and break away from it? Are they doing that? And then fifthly, the last part. True repentance in the last place shows itself by producing in the heart a settled habit of deep hatred of all sin. There you go. I'm doing a candidating sermon, and I'm talking about you guys should hate more. There you go. The mind of a penitent man becomes a mind habitually holy. He abhors that which is evil and cleaves to that which is good. He delights in the law of God. He comes short of his own desires not unfrequently. He finds in himself an evil principle warring against the Spirit of God. He finds himself cold when he would be hot. Any of you feel that way? backward when he would be forward, heavy when he would be lively in God's service. He is deeply conscious of his own infirmities. He groans under a sense of indwelling corruption, but still for all that, the general bias of his heart is towards God and away from evil. He can say with David, I count all of your precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. That's what repentance is. What is repentance? Acknowledging sin, being sorry for sin, confessing our sin, Breaking away from sin and hating that sin. That's what repentance looks like. But the beauty of what Isaiah 55 um, says as as we continue to to move in there, it says this in verse 7. Boy, this is good. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. Like, Think about this. I mean, everything that you've done poorly and and broken today, if you come to the Lord, he has compassion on you. And verse 7 says this. For he will abundantly pardon. He will abundantly pardon us. That's good news. And not only does he forgive us because of our sins, but then he adopts us into his family. You know, Romans 5 says, you know, here's the deal. Either you're a child of God or an enemy of God. That's it. That's what Scripture says. Enemy of God or child of God. You know, Romans 5 says you're an enemy outside of Christ, and in Christ, you're a beloved child of God. That's where you are. But when you understand that you are forgiven, when you understand that you have been forgiven, it changes everything. I want that truth to sink into your hearts deeply this morning, that when you come in repentance, that the Lord pardons you and says, I am. Forgive you because of what Jesus has done for you. Forgiveness is a powerful, powerful thing in our lives. There are so many people in our world today that are living underneath this great burden of sin. And and the burden is overwhelming. And so what they'll do is they'll try to numb themselves from feeling that burden of sin. It might be through... You know, pursuit of a job, or it might be through an addiction, or something else. But they're trying to pursue just to just just numb themselves, or have some sort of um, some sort of forgiveness. But they don't know where to go. And we have the words of forgiveness found in the scriptures. We see it in Jesus, and He says, "I forgive you." I mean, those are some of the most healing words that anyone can hear when you've wronged somebody else. You know, like when little kids get in trouble and you think that your parents are going to kill you, right? Like I'm going to be grounded forever. And then one of the greatest things that you can do as a parent is when your child comes and they are truly repentant to you and you look at them and you go, I forgive you and I love you. And then you wrap your arms around them and there is healing in those words. I pray that we would be a people who not only experience the forgiveness of God, but then we give forgiveness to those around us. Besides the fact that it's commanded by God. But then the final part is if we're called to receive the gospel, we're called to repent, we're also called to rejoice. If we look at the end of Isaiah chapter 55, there is this great refrain as we see it working itself out. You know, we see this refreshing nature of the Word of God, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth. Now, that is an implication of that really the only way that we can find true forgiveness and nourishment and refreshment and joy is something that comes outside of us but comes down from the Father of heaven like the rain and the snow come down. And boy, did you guys have some snow come down this past Thursday. Snarling flights and making people late and just not good. I'm glad God is sovereign and I'm not, but I was not happy. All right. But in the midst of the refreshing, nourishing, you know, joy that we have, that we will, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, there's this growth that takes place. There's this effusive joy that we have. And the the word of God in verse 11 says, it goes out from my mouth and it shall return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for I sent it. And then in verse 12, we see this great sort of joyful song for it says, for you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace peace. I mean, how many of us, I mean, anybody here longing for joy and peace in their life? I mean, I want joy. I want the joy of knowing that I am forgiven, the joy of knowing that my eternal state is secure, the joy of knowing that I am adopted into the family of God, that my sins have been forgiven, I have a new family, and that I can come to the Father at any time. That should bring us joy. It should make you smile. We Christians should be the smiliest people in the world. And then it also says that we should also, and we will be led forth in peace, joy and peace, like that we can, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of a a world ravaged by sin, broken, bent, and distorted, we can actually know what peace is. Now, it doesn't mean that our lives are smooth sailing and everything's easy, right? I mean, Jesus is going to come at a cost, but it does mean that Jesus will be with us and he will bring us lasting peace. It means that you're, you can think about the glory of heaven one day when there will be no more sin. And you can go, I long for that. You can know that God is in charge. And, and, I, and I love this because it, for you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Now, that is a picture of uninhibited joy that we find in our Father. The problem today is that we are greatly inhibited by what other people think and around the world. You know who some of the most uninhibited people are in the world? Toddlers. If you ask a small child, can they dance? They're like, yeah, I can dance. They don't dance well, but they can dance. And and one of the joys that we see and and one of the things that, if if you want to see joy, go work in the nursery. If you want to see depravity, go work in the nursery. You know, but if you want to see joy, I mean, go work in the nursery, right? Here's what you'll see. You'll see little girls and boys, and then the music starts, they'll start to dance. And then, if, and then they'll start to sing. If you ask a small child, can they sing? They're like, well, of course I can sing. You ask somebody who's 30 years old if they can sing and dance, and they'll say, uh, oh, not very well. We're inhibited. It's this, this idea that as a child of God, when we understand the gospel, when we understand that we get it without um, any merit of our own, when we are able to come and receive and, and drink the wine and the milk and be refreshed by the water, then we will be led forth in joy, go out in joy and be led forth in peace. And there will be just this great, very, very unpresbyterian like joy that comes out of our mouth and out of our heart and it actually affects these things called our feet and we might even know how to clap in rhythm, you know, all of those things. I mean, won't that be glorious? That when you get to glory, you'll know how to sing and dance and to have such great joy and peace and you will have uninhibited joy and peace. That's the promise We not only get to experience that in the future, we begin to experience that, just a little bit of that, here, right now, waiting, waiting for either Jesus to come back or waiting for us to go be with Jesus. So brothers and sisters, might we receive the gospel, might we repent of our sins, and then knowing that we are forgiven, might we rejoice like small children who love music, Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I pray, Lord, that you would cause the word of God to sink deeply within our hearts and minds and souls. That we would love we would love you more. That we would walk with you. Father, there are many um, here today who are struggling. In this sin-ravaged world, Father, there is sickness, there is disease, there is chronic pain, there is uncertainty in this life. And Father, for those who are struggling and for their caretakers and for those who love them, Father, I pray, Lord, that the hope of the gospel would rule and reign in their hearts and minds, that they would know that any prayer they utter will not be unheard, that they would know that they are loved by the Father deeply. And Father, I pray, Lord, that they would be able to rejoice even in the midst of the pain and the uncertainty. Father, would you show up in a mighty way. Father, I I pray, Lord, for for families and for, for marriages. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would make marriages strong within this church. Father, I pray, Lord, that husbands would love their wives as Christ loved the church. I pray that wives and husbands would be working to bring the gospel to bear in their families. I pray, Lord, that the the words, I love you and I forgive you, would be heard and said every day within our homes. That you would make our homes a nursery for heaven. That the children that we rear would know Jesus. And that they would walk with Jesus all the days of their life. Father, help us to not bend ourselves to the world and to the thinking of the world. but Father, help us to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Father, may we treasure your word. May we hide it within our hearts. Father, may it correct us and train us. And Father, might we love it. Give us a heart for your word. Father, we pray, Lord, for our country, Father, that just seems to be trying to tear itself apart. We pray, Lord, that the the love of Jesus, that the heart of the gospel would go forth from this church through these people. That we would see ourselves as missionaries within our homes, within our places of business, within our neighborhoods, within our families. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would give us opportunity and courage, humility, and the words to speak. Give us opportunity to share the love of Christ with those who do not know you. And Father, we pray, Lord, that we would take every advantage um, or every opportunity to sing your praises, to tell about the good story, the story of forgiveness and redemption and justification and sanctification, the story that we are now children of God, no longer your enemies. Father, would you help us? And Father, I pray, Lord, also, um, as we think about missions and missionaries, Father, I pray, Lord, for the missionaries that are sent out from this church that are supported by this church. Father, we think about the campus ministry. Father, we think about Kansas University. What a ripe mission field it is. Father, we pray, Lord, that students there would hear the gospel and they would bend their knee and bow their head and proclaim Jesus as Lord and Savior. We pray that you would provide more missionaries. Father, we pray, Lord, that we would see the fruit of the harvest, and Father, that you would bless those who are sent out. Father, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So, Father, help us. And, Father, we pray, Lord, that the rest of this day we would honor you and that we would love you. So, Father, hear our prayers. Give us a great affection for Jesus and for one another. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.